Hello and welcome to the Virtual Midwife Podcast, a show for pregnant women who want to make informed decisions about their health and the health of their babies. I'm your host, the Virtual Midwife, Karen Wilmot, and having worked in hospitals, communities, and independently around the world, in this podcast, I share some of the many lessons I've learned in the labor room. I'll be interviewing thought leaders and change makers, each one of them quietly fueling the silent revolution to restore normality to childbirth, to support women's choice and restore respect. I have a deep belief in the mind-body connection, so I'll be sharing some powerful meditations for pregnancy and birth. You'll find the show notes and transcripts on my blog, and while you're there, sign up for the free gift so that you can stay up to date with the courses and retreats that I offer. I work with women online and in person via my online platform, thevirtualmidwife.com. Follow me on social media and subscribe to my YouTube channel, The Virtual Midwife, to get more tips and tools and techniques for labor and birth. So I'm very pleased to welcome Jody Day to the podcast today. Now in the intro I say that this is a podcast for pregnant women. But what about the woman who wants to be pregnant and cannot? The woman who have ended up with a partner who doesn't want children or doesn't want more children? Perhaps there's those of you who have a chronic illness that means being pregnant is not possible. Or not being able to find a partner, which is now known as social infertility. And there's those of you who are unable to afford having a baby on your own and maybe not that keen to be a solo mother or thinking that you didn't want children and then realizing that you did and then your relationship breaks down during fertility treatments. And these are just some of the things that Jodie Day talks about in her book, Living the Life Unexpected, where she talks about 50 ways not to be a mother. Jodie Day is both a thought leader and a change maker and she is an advocate for women's choice and respect having gone through her own personal challenge of being childless, not by choice. Now, as a woman without children myself, and in a position where I work with women with children and having babies daily, this subject is of particular interest to me. And I discovered Jodie Day when I was going through my own struggles of not being able to have children and joined her amazing community called Gateway Woman. Jodie Day is the founder of Gateway Woman, which is a global friendship and support network for childless women, and as I mentioned, she is the author of Living Life Unexpected, which is 12 weeks to your plan B for a meaningful and fulfilling future without children. She's a thought leader on female involuntary childlessness and a founding and former member at the AWOC, which is Aging Without Children. Jodie is a former Cambridge Judge Business School Fellow in Social Innovation, a TEDx speaker and a trainee psychotherapist. She takes great pleasure in helping childless women get their groove back and find their tribe via the Gateway Woman workshops, online communities and social meetups that happen across the world through her website, gatewaywoman.com. In her website, on the Gateway Woman, she mentions that it's the club you never wanted to join, but once you get the support you need to get you through your grief and out of your isolation, life starts getting fun again. So thank you, Jodie, for joining me today, and welcome to the Virtual Midwife podcast. 
I'd like to start off by asking you to please share your story of how it is that you came to be childless, not by choice. My story of childlessness begins in my own childhood, which was pretty rocky and bumpy. Uh, my mum had me as an unplanned pregnancy in her later teenage years. And my, my parents split up before I was born. So, you know, I kind of came into this world, you know, it was a bit of a shock for everyone involved. And my mum then married when I was three years old to, um, to a man that she was sort of pretty well much forced into marrying to give me a respectable home. So she was, you know, so she was, you know, married young to, you know, into an unhappy marriage with a young child. And I grew up in that situation, really not seeing family and motherhood as all that great. And also, you know, it's a generational thing as well. My, I was born in 1964. As I was kind of coming of age, you know, growing up through the 70s, the opportunities that were starting to happen for women, you know, the women's liberation movement and, and you know, first wave feminism were really kind of waking things up. And, you know, my mum was, you know, she was young and she very much kind of gave me the impression that there was a world out there for me that hadn't been out there for her and that she wanted me to take advantage of that. So I had these dual messages growing up of kind of that, that children sort of ruin your life, which is kind of, you know, the message I picked up I, that was also picked up at school as well as a teenager, you know. I mean, really, it was like getting pregnant young ruins your life. But the message they kind of gave us was, you know, very much it will be the end of everything if you get pregnant. Mm. So I was not focused at all on the idea of having a family as a young woman. So much so that when I got pregnant at um, 20, um, I, I chose to have an abortion because I was absolutely terrified of becoming a mother terrified of, I think, repeating my own childhood, um, terrified of, um, you know, my life being finished and over. And when it was just getting started, you know, I'd, I'd only been living in London for a year. I was, um, I was a kind of what's now called an intern uh, at a fashion PR agency, which was, you know, the work I really wanted to do. It was like it was all starting to fall into place for me. So I didn't regret the abortion. It was tough. Um, I was I had it on the National Health Service and I had to wait three months for the abortion so you know that was that was really tough emotionally um, kind of knowing all of that time during that early pregnancy that I, I wouldn't be going ahead with it and then I that relationship didn't survive um, even though my you know my boyfriend at the time was lovely and would have had the baby with me and then I went on to meet the man who would become later become my husband. And quite early on in our relationship, I said to him, I don't think I want to have children. And he was like, okay. And, you know, this huge conversation. And then we got married when I was 26, which looking back on it, I was so young. <laughs> well, I felt, you know, really, really old and grown up. And at 29, I kind of changed my mind um, because children were no longer this idea that of just this you know, this kind of abstract, you know, concept, they had become our children, the product of our combined DNA of our love, and our life. And then I thought, yeah. So I kind of said, actually, I do want to have children. And he was like, okay. <laughs> so, uh, like, you know, these are conversations that can, you know, destroy relationships. And in both cases, for me, it was, you know, it, it was like no big deal. But I couldn't get pregnant. 
And I was completely unshakably convinced that I would. So I actually didn't seek any help for a few years. It was three years before I had an operation, um, a laparoscopy, which is where they put a camera through your tummy button to have a look around um, mm -hmm. because I was concerned that there was some damage from the abortion. And the very avuncular surgeon who performed the operation when I came round from it said, uh, first class uterus, finest property I've seen all week. <laughs> you lovely young people just go away and have lots of sex. That was it. That was a total advice that I got. And, you know, looking back on it now, you know, even when I went for the follow-up appointment, you know, with the gynecologist, it's kind of really shocking because I was 33 mm. and tried to conceive for nearly four years. All of my hormone profiles and, and examinations were fine. And so were my husband's. And there was a moment there for education. Mm -hmm. that was missed which was I knew nothing about the aging quality of eggs I knew nothing about 35 being a kind of you know the, the a really key date in a, in a woman's fertility I, all we were told to do you know I wasn't even suggested that we have further investigations we consider IVF nothing it was just like everything's fine go away and carry on and so we did and nothing happened and I then entered a period of what I call baby mania just, you know, doing everything I possibly could to get pregnant, visiting every alternative therapist, nutritionist, acupuncturist, um, you know, giving up this, taking up that, starting exercise, leaving a job because it was next to a polluted road, um, you know, having sex at the right times, peeing on every color of stick. I mean, I do remember one exhausting month that I insisted that my husband and I, uh, that we have sex every single day for a month. Because I was, I, I just said, there's just no way we can miss it then. You know? <laughs> that sounds like fun, but anyone who's been through trying to get pregnant knows that after a while it, it, it becomes quite sad that, you know, that this is what you're, you know, you're trying to conceive and it's not working. And I didn't get pregnant. And by the time we arrived at the point where it was really time to start thinking about IVF, the marriage was in a really bad state. Um, my then husband, we had no longer married, um, had developed um, sort of his workaholism had tipped over into alcoholism and then into sort of drug, heavy drug use as well. And things were just such a mess. And I remember when he said to me, I was lying in the bath, he was cleaning his teeth. And he said, I, I think we should do IVF. And I just had this, this moment, this, this sinking moment in my soul, I thought. I can't bring a baby into this, you know? And it was shocking and very sad. And it was also for me actually a deeply maternal decision because I didn't, I grew up in chaos and I didn't want my children to grow up in chaos. And um, possibly not that surprisingly, you know, um, the marriage unraveled from that point onwards. And uh, so I left the marriage. I was back out into the brave new world of internet dating at age 38. I mean, I was out there so fast because of this baby mania. You know, I thought I've got to meet someone else and do IVF. No idea that the chance of it working was so small. No idea that actually um, I was already at the beginning of perimenopause. I didn't know that. I, um, I didn't know anything about any, any of these kind of really important pieces of information. I just didn't know. And um, I had two relationships post-divorce, 
neither of them were right to bring children into. One guy didn't want children, the other guy did, but actually it's quite lucky I wasn't able to get pregnant naturally because he was a raging narcissist, very controlling and coercive. It was hugely difficult to get out of that relationship. And when I did, I was 44 and a half, it was done. You know, Even with my ignorance about fertility, I knew that, well, if I met someone now, I'd need to know that for at least a year before we could consider IVF, I'll be 45 it's it's done you know that would be the end of my journey so that was the end of my journey towards motherhood and the beginning of my journey towards coming to terms with my childlessness i think what you say about it being a deeply maternal decision is mm. such a valid point and it's actually a beautiful way of putting it because sometimes when people you know, it's only when you don't have children that you start seeing the difference between women who are childless by choice, women who are childless not by choice, mm. all of the different subcategories of not having children. But mm. it's always a deeply maternal decision, regardless of which category you fall into. Yes. And for, and for child-free women too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I often hear, you know, what, that child-free women are sort of, you know, they're selfish and things like that. I mean, it's often said of childless women as well. And it's something I've really kind of thought about and, and discussed, you know, with my child-free friends over the years. And, and when I've thought about it, well, let's just think about the alternative. Here is someone who is absolutely convinced that motherhood is not for them, you know. Surely it would be much more selfish to have children if that's how you feel about it, you know. In which case, because we all know what that we all know what that looks like because, you know, for, for millennia, women haven't had the choice. There have been very many reluctant mothers. Some of us have even been brought up by them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think that that's exactly just highlights the points, you know, so well. And what are the statistics at the moment for um, women without children? Because I know that that's a lot of what you do with in, in Gateway Women. Yeah, I mean, it varies, it varies from country to country. For my cohort, so born in the 60s, uh, we reached one in five um, over the age of 45, don't have children. That's the, the first time it was so high um, since the generation born around 1900, which really shows, and that generation had the massive loss of life in the First World War of so many young men, followed by the Great Depression of the 1930s, which meant a lot of couples couldn't marry and have children. So, you know, when you see it took the biggest war, you know, with the loss of life we've ever had and the biggest global depression to create these numbers before, you begin to really understand what a huge social moment this is. Mm. Now, for the generation or the cohort coming up behind me, those born in the 1970s, we don't have all of the data yet because they haven't all got to the point where they've turned 45. Um, actually, early information for those born around 1971 in the UK is it's looking at about sort of one in six. I think it's going to get much higher because, you know, if my inbox is anything to go by, I think it will be certainly one in five, maybe one in four. I think for the millennial generation coming up behind that, it is going to be really high. Um, I know that I think, the um, statistics for women having their first child is yeah. changing. You know, um, yeah. it is now much older than what it used to be having their first children. I can't, yeah, I can't remember the exact data, but it's something like, um, and this, this data is coming out of the US, that the millennial generation, the amount, of them, the amount of them turning 30, women turning 30 without having had their first child, has gone up from about 12% in, uh, to, about, to almost 50. 
so in a generation. Now, obviously, many of those young women will have children in their 30s, but a lot of them will probably age out of the process as so many of, you know, so many of us did mm -hmm. because, you know, they will, maybe they'll start trying in their mid-30s, maybe they won't find a partner, maybe they'll choose to remain child-free. But mm -hmm. I think for the generation coming up behind us with the huge economic pressures um, on them, you know, it's so hard to set up a home to, you know, to earn, earn a, a good enough living to bring up children now um, because of the cost of living. Plus the, you know, the, the sort of the, the sense of social and economic fragility and environmental fragility in the world. I think that their, their thoughts about becoming a parent are going to be very, very different. Mm -hmm. And um, before we go into all the other questions, can you tell me how mm -hmm. Gateway Woman came about and what the process was? What is Gateway Woman and who is it for? Okay, so Gateway way women is is for women who are childless not by choice um, I sometimes say childless by circumstance but that is slowly starting to mean women who are childless for any other reason other than infertility or choice where for me circumstance includes infertility so I now say childless not by choice because that kind of encompasses it all it started as a blog seven years ago uh, seven years ago this month I wrote my very first blog and I wrote that blog because nobody would let me talk about it. You know, whenever I would try to discuss how I felt about my childlessness to, to friends or family or anyone, they would close me down with a selection of what I came to call miracle baby stories. Um, I'm younger looking than my age. I always have been. Oh, well, you've still got loads of time. And um, why don't you have a baby on your own? You know, I mean, I, I'm around about 40, you know, I'm kind of 46 when I'm having these conversations, you know, it's not like I'm not a spring chicken at this point. And, oh, you know, I met this woman, you know, she met this guy at the bus stop, you know, he's, you know, she's in remission, he's on remand, they've got twins, whatever it might be, whatever extraordinary story it would be. And the other ones are things like also sort of just closing me down by saying, actually, kids aren't all they're cracked up to be. Yeah. Really, you dodged a bullet. Why don't you have mine? You're so lucky. You get to sleep in and travel and do all this and blah, blah, blah. And really, you know, you're so lucky not to have children. They, and the subtext of that is, why don't you appreciate it more and cheer up? You know? <laughs> I, I think just, one I is when they ask you. Yeah, I think the best one is when they say, why don't you just adopt? <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't you, don't you love the just? Yeah, why just. Don't you just adopt? Like I'm going to go off and wash my hair like. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's extremely, you know, it's extremely difficult to adopt. Um, even if you are ready for that and set up for that. I mean, I was, I was single, um, self-employed, you know, broke, not living in a house that I owned. I mean, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have made it through the first hurdle. People, people don't realize that, you know, actually that the, the bar is set pretty high. And also from now, from the many women I've supported through, you know, through Gateway Women, I know how many, how many people get turned down for adoption, how many people, you know, after years of being in the matching process, just, just give up, you know, it's a, it's tough. You know, it's it a is. tough process as a couple, let alone as a single woman. And it's not necessarily the solution and certainly not the solution that you're looking for at the time where you're in the highest point of your grief or when, as you say, you're just trying to share where you've, you know, because mm -hmm. it's also about processing yeah. those emotions and processing mm -hmm. your identity and your place in society. 
Mm -hmm. Well, those conversations are really what I set up Gateway Women to have because you can't have them sort of out there in the in the pronatalist in the pronatalist world. It's very hard to have those conversations. And so I wrote that first blog, and I thought, well, if one woman reads this and, and gets it, you know, that would be great. And actually. Uh, quite a lot of women read it <laughs> and I got my first piece of PR the day after my first blog was published and you know women from all over the world started writing and commenting on the blogs and you know saying how can you know the exact words in my head I thought I was the only person feeling these things and also something which I didn't realize was so special about it was that I used my real name I had my photograph on there I did not hide I I for some reason, I did not feel some of the level of shame around my childlessness that, that some women do. I think perhaps because I'd been through, I think perhaps because I'd been through so much healing in the 12-step programs um, where, you know, where I'd been through a program called Al-Anon, which it's, it's for friends and family of addicts and alcoholics for a couple of years which had really saved my sanity after my marriage broke down and helped me understand the mechanics of kind of, 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 of loving someone with a substance abuse problem. And also my own part in that, you know, the codependency that had built up. So I'd had a couple of years of sitting in a room talking about things you're not meant to talk about. So I think that really helped me to be very comfortable with sort of breaking taboos. And I broke a huge taboo by being open about childlessness. And what was the most difficult aspect of not having children for you to come to terms with? Gosh, there are so many. Um, and my feeling of which is the most difficult varied at different points in my journey. I think at first it was the, the sense of grief of not having, you know, not having a biological child, never being a mother never giving birth. Um, and then I sort of, from there, I kind of moved on into absolute fear and terror about growing old without children, about having no legacy in this world, about no one ever visiting my grave, about never having really mattered. And I think you know, another huge aspect for me was um, how it impacted my friendship groups and my status as a woman. And, you know, really my friendship groups just kind of falling apart because of, you know, me not being a part of the the normal crowd, you know, I was the only one. I was the only one who didn't have children. Uh, I have, you know, two friends who are child-free by choice, um, one of whom I'm close to and one of whom is slightly on the periphery of my life, if you know what I mean. But I didn't know anyone else who had wanted to be a mum and it hadn't worked out. I knew people who'd had fertility problems and they'd had treatment and worked. Um, you know, people who'd adopted, people who'd had last-minute babies, people who had babies on their own, you know, the whole thing. But I didn't know anyone for whom, you know, who was coming to terms with childlessness and the, the loneliness of that, the intense loneliness of that part of my experience because I was, you know, I was, I was also single, a single, childless. It felt like I was friendless and I felt like a zero as a human being and a zero as a woman. It was an existential dark night of the soul. Of such profundity how did you honor that grief and loss because I feel that um, it's such an important aspect of coming to terms with not having children is really honoring the grief and that's so much mm. uh, it's, it's something that is not 
always possible. It's certainly not something, it's not a, um, there's not many opportunities for, for, for honoring that grief and loss. So you have to create them yourself. Yeah. You know, it's a bit like miscarriage. Yeah. No opportunities offered for mm. honoring the grief mm. and loss of, of losing a child. It's, you know, same mm. thing. It's, or oh, you can have another one. You're still young, all the same platitude. Yeah. Um, but more so when it's not having children at all. So how did you, first of all, realize that you had to honor it? And then what did you do to honor it? Mm. Well, I, I had no idea it was grief at first. Uh, I mean, the first couple of years, which were really before I started the blog, I, I didn't realize that what I was experiencing was grief. Um, I, you know, I was, I was seeing doctors, I was seeing therapists, and nobody picked up that the reason I was struggling so much was actually my childlessness. It, it is extraordinary to me that it was not identified, it was not named, it was not held. It wasn't until I, so I was in my, um, I think it was my first or my second year of my training to become a psychotherapist. And we did this, uh, this training on bereavement. And, um, you know, we're doing this training and I'm thinking, this is all very familiar. And I went home that evening from the, the first day of the training and kind of mapped the Kubler-Ross model that, that we'd been learning around grief and loss against my experience. And I realized just like, oh my God, I'm grieving. You know, it was, I've got goosebumps now because it was a moment that changed my life mm. because finally I had, I had a name uh, for, for what I was experiencing. And also for the first time I had a little bit of hope because although number one, I, I knew this meant I wasn't going mad and I was, you know, I was worried that, you know, I was kind of losing my mind because I was trying everything to, to feel better and nothing was working. And number two, I thought, well, I don't know quite how this happens, but I know that grief ends. I know that people grieve and then they come out the other side of it. So it's like this, I'm not always going to feel like this. I don't know how, but somehow I'm going to get through this. It was the first bit of hope that I was going to get through this. I wasn't going to feel this bad for the rest of my life. So at that point, I became a bit of a grief junkie. I just read everything I could. I was looking out there for, for resources. I was not finding anything related to childlessness at all. So I started writing about it on my blog and women from all over the world, a lot of them found out that they were grieving through, through my work. And when you say, you know, what did I do to honor that loss? I think for me, writing about it and then bringing women together because it, I mean, it wasn't long. I mean, I started the blog in April. I gave my first talk about grief in June. So it's all happening around the same time. And, you know, at that talk, you know, women are saying to me, you seem to understand what's happening in a way that, that no one else is talking about or writing about. Can you sort of do something about it? <laughs> I was like, me? You know, I, I was just, I just felt like a complete basket case at that point in my life. The idea that I had anything to offer, you know, was, was like absurd. But once again, because of my experience in the 12 step groups, I just thought, well, I know the power of peer to peer healing. I don't need to be sorted. What, I, what if I just create an experiment? What if I just bring some childless women together, create a safe and confidential space, create a structure for what we're going to talk about, and let's see what happens. 
And that's what the very first Gateway Women groups were about. It was like, it was that. And it was the first one I did. It was a 10-week group, 10 Saturday mornings. We went through many of the things, steps, which later then, you know, made it into my book. And it was completely transformational. And so for me, honoring my grief was also about creating a sacred space for women to honor their grief together. And I didn't understand it at the time, but I, I now understand that grief is a social emotion and we need others who get it in order for it to be processed and move through and heal us. Well, I'm a firm believer that we have a life path to follow. Um, and that sometimes means accepting things that we didn't think we wanted or didn't think we had planned. If you had an opportunity to turn back the clock and change anything, what, if anything, would you do differently? I think I would have done things differently when my marriage ended had I known about fertility. I wish I'd known at 37, 38 that actually my time was, was up because it was for me. Um, and, you know, those first few years post-divorce would have been very different um, and would have been about me and me finding myself again rather than throwing myself headlong into a series of unsuitable relationships, desperate to have a child. So I think I, I would have, you know, I, I would have loved to have understood more about my fertility actually right from school onwards. You know, that, that would have made a big difference to my life and my choices. Yeah. Mm. I'd, like to, I'd like to have done, I would have done fertility differently. <laughs> And yet somehow that's led you on this path that you've ended up helping mm. so many thousands of women around the world mm. and really highlighting the issue that surrounds yes. with our children. Yes. And, um, mm. you know, I, in many ways I'm quite fortunate in my role as a midwife that it gives me the opportunity to nurture and mother mothers. Mm. But I know that while I hold a very valuable role in our space, I never really belong mm. with them. I, I, yeah. I do yeah. acknowledge that. Um, can you speak a little bit more about belonging and how you manage it in your life now? Oh, goodness, belonging. We might need a whole other topic for that one. It's a big one, isn't it? I, I think it's, yeah, it's one of, I think it's possibly once we're through, you know, the, 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 I mean, you can't really separate it out from the grief, but it is something which continues. I mean, even though I'm no longer grieving, you know, the, the, the kind of the issue of belonging is still a very big one. And it's one I support so many women with. I think for me, I felt that I not only didn't belong in the kind of community of mothers, I felt that I didn't belong in the community of women anymore. Mm. And, uh, at, you know, probably at the depths of my grief, I actually sort of didn't feel I, be I kind of belonged to the human race anymore. I felt that I was just a kind of a reject. And I, I remember... There's a place in southwestern France where I visited a lot and where I kind of, you know, do, you know, wrote my book and I wrote the second edition of my book. And there's a walk that I take up in the mountains on my own. And it's because it's the same walk every time, you know, when I'm there, different seasons, I, I you know, I see the seasons changing. And I used to find it incredibly painful because I had this sense of that my connection with nature, which had always been so profoundly healing to me as a child and as a young woman, had also gone because I felt that even nature had rejected me, you know, that I was not part of this cycle of, of birth and death, that I didn't even belong to the, you know, to nature anymore. 
And then as my healing progressed one day, I realized that for me, although I wasn't part of the, the human cycle of procreation, you know, that my line stopped, which is a huge issue to deal with, this sense that, you know, the millions of years of genetic feats of survival that created us stop here. It's a massive one to get your, your head around. So although I was a part of that story, I was part of the bigger story of, um, you know, the bigger cycles of life and death. And, you know, that when I die, my body will return to the earth and will turn back into base elements and will, you know, become mulch and then will turn back into flowers and then life will come again. And I kind of connected to a much larger sense of, of life and death than, than, than the small circle that, that I had felt so ejected from. And that was a big part for me of beginning to feel like I belonged on the earth again which was, you know, really necessary because that's how much I felt I didn't belong. And then gradually, you know, I found my tribe through other childless women. You know, I've set up the Gateway Women meetups and online communities. And I met, you know, childless women from all around the world. I have some wonderful childless friends in my life now, which supplemented those few friends that I did manage to hang on to through, you know, from my original friendship groups. And I think now I feel I feel part of the tribe of women, um, but I think I feel, and I always have done, a little bit of an outsider. Um, you know, I was perhaps wanting to be a mum for me was also about wanting, it was my last ditch attempt to join the ranks of the normal people. I've had an unusual life. I've always, I don't know, I've always been slightly different to other women my age whether that's taller than them or you know more interested in them that in education or I don't I've always seemed to have been slightly I hate to say because it sounds boastful but a bit ahead of the curve but the thing about being ahead of the curve means you're a little bit outside the norm so I just started to connect with other leaders and thinkers um, in this world of kind of supporting childless women. Uh, I have an amazing group on Facebook, which is just for the women around the world who do this kind of work like yourself. And I thought, okay, I have a tribe. It's not the tribe I thought I wanted, you know, but it is full of kick-ass, awesome women who have found a way to make peace with their childlessness in a world that does not accept our value as women you know, in the same way that it does as mothers. So it's taken work. Mm. I won't deny it. But I think, first of all, I had to feel I belonged to myself again. And then gradually my life became richer in belonging. And another, but just one key more point I've just remembered about that. As I started to accept that I would definitely never be a mother and I would never belong to the society and the culture and the land in that way, once I let that go completely, I began to realize that my life had lots of belonging in it, but it was belonging I wasn't interested in before, so I was ignoring it. So, you know, there, were, there's, you know, there's, there are lots of young people in my life through my ex-husband who has six, he's one of six siblings. And, you know, they, they've all known me since the day they were born. They really cared for me. I have, you know, friends and colleagues. It's like, you know, my pets. I realized that actually I was very much loved and very much part of groups. I was seen as being part of groups, but I, I wasn't feeling it. I felt so alone. 
So I actually had to learn how to allow the belonging that was being offered in my life in as well. Because it was so different to the belonging you had in mind. I totally get that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that really resonates with me because um, I've felt very similar in, on my journey. And certainly the not belonging has been a huge one for me. And I, oh. I, I really, um, I know I went through a stage of also thinking, you know, you feel worthless. You, you really do yeah. feel what is the point, you know, if, if, if you can't do that, what mm -hmm. is the point? And it's so difficult to explain. So you've put it into words so beautifully, just um, really explaining how many issues are unearthed when you are unable to have a baby, to create life, Absolutely. to continue mm. that life cycle. Um, it is associated with absolutely every aspect of our life. And so we examine mm -hmm. every aspect of our life in an effort to come to terms with it. And we have to reframe every aspect of our life in order to do that and change everything. And I think belonging is just one of them. But um, what mm. you say is so relevant, how you just have to realize that you belong, belong in so many other ways, but we will never belong to the mommy club, essentially. Yeah. Um, we'll never be part of that. Um, and I mean, I'm so closely associated with it and I'm part of it every single day, but I will never belong. And even in my work with mums, you know, um, I see how my role changes. I'm so valued during their pregnancy in those first few weeks when I'm really helping them. And then I see them step into motherhood. I see them become mothers. And then it changes. And the friendship and the relationship, uh, professional, personal, in every way, just shifts. The balance shifts. And I, it used to really throw me when I was younger mm. and when I was still coming to terms with it. Now I mm. find it actually quite beautiful because there's an element. I was going to say, and it's, pro and it's, probably, it's probably a really important part of, of, of their process too, that, that that shift happens. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful watching and it's beautiful letting them go and saying, right, you know, it's like little birds, you know, there you go, off you go. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You're on your own now. I've done my bit. But it was difficult initially. I was, oh, I wanted to kind of like be able to say, oh, I remember this and I remember that. Well, I don't. I remember it with a hundred women or a thousand women that I've helped. But I just don't mm. have my own experience to impart in that story. Right. So, mm. yeah. Wow. Um, where do you think that the change needs to occur in order for society to become more accepting or even understanding of the fact that one, so many more women are either choosing to be childless or are childless by not by choice. Because as you say, the statistics are changing. It's definitely becoming more. Um, and I do think it's more, as you say, of, of, of by choice. Um, but even when it's by choice, they're still going to face the same landmines uh, yeah. and the same issues. I mean, it's it, exactly, I mean, they, they have a different internal experience to it, you know, um, not most of the time, but not always child-free women don't experience a grieving process. And also they don't experience the shame that so many childless women feel because this is an identity they've chosen and they're proud of it. 
So, you know, they come at it from a very different space most of the time. Their stories are often a lot more complex, as all Mm -hmm. of us are, than than people realise. Yes. Um, But as you say, they face the same social landmines. Um, I don't know, gosh, where to start. I mean, the ideology that underpins the the difficulties that, that women have you know, with, with the whole motherhood identity issue is called pronatalism. And this is the conditioning that says that the only fully adult way to be a member of society is to be a parent and that all other forms of adulthood are lesser than that. It is, um, it underpins everything that we're talking about. It's one of the things that makes coming to terms with childlessness so difficult. It's one of the things that propels women into motherhood, um, perhaps without really understanding what they're doing, whether it's really the right decision for them. It's, the, it's where the whole myth of uh, the fantasy of how amazing motherhood is going to be <laughs> is kind of starts. Yeah. And this idea that this is really the only way to be a, a, a real woman. Now, really, we're going to have to dismantle the ideology of pronatalism. And this is a huge task. Most people haven't even heard of the word. I mean, when I sort of, you know, and I'll say, well, you know, and when I use words like ideology, sometimes people are like, oh no, here she goes. And it's like, well, you know, what is ideology? Well, if you asked a fish, how's the water? The fish would say, what's water? That is ideology. It is the conditioning all around us that tells us how the world is you know, and how things are and how things are meant to be. Pronatalism is part of that conditioning. It is a conditioning which is really, really old-fashioned and past its time. It's had a massive boost in the last 25 years. I think it's very interesting. I think we're experiencing a moment of huge social backlash, which is operating unconsciously, to really to turn back It's not going to work, but to turn back the tide that's happened with so much um, rising equality for women, which has happened in in, in our lifetimes. In a way, it's almost like, okay, so you've got jobs and you can earn your own living and you can buy your own flats and you can drive your own cars and all these things that even a a generation ago was really hard to do. I mean, a woman couldn't get a mortgage (laughs) a generation ago in her own name even. And you know, you've got all these things, you've got all this equality. So in a way, by suddenly making motherhood, you know, the ultimate achievement for women, it's a way of kind of pushing back against the idea that, that a, a, a female equality. It's, it's really interesting because when I was growing up, coming, you know, in the 70s, motherhood was, did not have this exalted status. It was something women did. It was private. Mm. It was a little bit embarrassing. Uh, it was not cool. <laughs> I mean, in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, when the then Princess of Wales was pregnant, um, she had this huge billowing maternity smock, um, you know, and it was kind of quite, it was quite private. You know, it could, she couldn't hide the fact that she was heavily pregnant, but you know what I mean? People were quiet and respectful. This was a private matter, mm-hmm. you know, and you kind of fast forward a generation to when Beyonce was pregnant a couple of years ago. Do you remember those extraordinary pictures of, of her, I mean, she nearly broke the internet. With, you know, these pictures of One of the Kardashians who had a baby, I think, on live TV or something equally as bizarre. Oh, Lord, I'm glad I missed, I'm glad I missed that. Yeah, one, of, one of them <laughs> um, did a live stream YouTube or something. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I'll just take it a has, moment to take that one. In. A lot. 
this is the sense of from you know that 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 motherhood and pregnancy has moved from something private to something very public and and says something about you as a woman you have arrived as a woman in a way that it it, it didn't in the 70s when feminism was on the rise and certainly my mother's friends when i was growing up did not spend all their time talking about children if anything they were really pleased you know, there were grown-up conversations and the children had to go to bed and then, and then the women got to talk about something else. Mm. You know, they finally got to talk about... So there, there's a really massive cultural shift in terms of an, an over-privileging of the public role and status of motherhood. Now, I am not running down the individual status of motherhood, you know, how important motherhood is to families and children. It's this, it's this very public fetishizing of motherhood that, uh, that I find problematic. And I think it's really problematic for mothers as well, as well as childless women, because it gives, this, gives it a sheen and a gloss that many women, when they then become mothers, realize is actually smoke and mirrors because it's a tough job. Mm. I can completely agree with that because that's what I see with the mums I work with, you know. The, the expectations are so high, the pressures are so high, and because of the fetishas. <laughs> Fetish- I can't say it either. It's a tough word. That word. Fetishization of it. <laughs> um, you know, there's this expectation that they have to be back to their birth weight within six weeks, looking glorious, looking great, out and about with the baby in the perfect bouncer, in the perfect stroller, in the perfect outfit. Um, it's very difficult. And the pressures to be a good parent are, are so high. And yet, parenting and you know, this sounds rich coming from me, but just in my experience of helping parents, it's a journey. It's a process. Just like we had to process accepting that we would never be parents. Those who become parents have a process towards becoming a parent. We're not born parents. The baby is born and we become parents um, through trial and error, through trying different things. Uh, But, you know, this is, social media makes it look as if you know from the day your baby comes home this is how it is and this is the picture and this is what it looks like but nobody talks about what it feels like and it doesn't always feel the same as it looks so it is very very difficult yeah and i i think the you know the another huge taboo that's being broken at the moment is is uh is mothers talking those mothers who regret having children talking about it which is a, a massive taboo because it's this idea, well, that means you don't love your children, which is absolutely ridiculous because it's, it's, it's like, no, if I had known that what motherhood was going to really be like, I might have kind of waited longer. I might have made different choices. But it's not saying I don't love my children. It's saying actually motherhood is really, really hard. And, you know, I, I, and I, I, was, I, was sold, I was sold a lie. And I, you know, I really applaud those women who are saying that. And, you know, the fact that many of them have to do it anonymously, I understand because I can imagine, you know, to read that that's what your mother said about you once you're grown up is, is not going to help anyone. Yeah. And I think it just comes back to um, society having to change to accept all women, regardless of whether they have children whether they haven't got children, mm. whether they've got children and realize, wow, that wasn't quite for me, but just accepting and supporting everybody on their own journey. Yes. Um, and, and I, you know, I think for, you know, for childless women, not by choice, you know, part of my journey was, was really coming through the envy 
and the fantasy. So I had to break through the fantasy of motherhood that I'd, I'd absorbed to really see the life of my friends with children and really kind of take the blinkers off and see that it's hard. It's a different human journey to my life. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. Mm. Um, you know, I had to break through that fantasy in order to find my freedom. And I think for, you know, for, for mums, it can be, it can be difficult for them to appreciate that, that the lives of their friends who are childless or child-free aren't always about white sofas and lions and holidays. That actually, you know, the, the process, the coming through the existential process of coming to terms with childlessness, dealing with, um, you know, aging alone, dealing with, you know, society's ideas about us on a daily basis is really challenging. You know, we have not got a free ticket to some kind of amazing life, and neither have they. You know, they're just different ways of being women that equally value. I love that. I mean, I think that's the whole point of it is that we all have our challenges. Um, mm. And as you say, it's not a free ticket to, to um, joy, endless joy, one way or the other. Each of our no. paths no. have got their own challenges and neither of them are mm-hmm. better. And they can't even really be compared because they are so completely different. Mm. But there's good and bad mm. to both. So just before we end this off and go to some what I call quick fire questions, I would love it if you could just uh-huh. share a little bit more about Gateway Woman and um, possibly even the summit that you're running at the moment. Well, I'm, I'm part of the We Are Worthy Summit, and that's weareworthysummit.com, which is a week long of uh, free programming run by um, Andrew and Nikki Fletcher and Brandy Little of the Childless Not By Choice magazine, which is also a really great magazine. Uh, It's an online magazine and the first in the world. And we've got amazing speakers from all over the world, um, women and a couple of men too, talking about the many, many different aspects of of infertility and childlessness, uh, not by choice. Um, And I did a seminar last week. I'm doing another one this week. Last week was on finding your plan B. This week is on coping with other people, dealing with the challenges um, that childlessness creates in your friendships and relationships. And whenever you're listening to this recording, if you, um, the, the recordings of the, of the webinars, which I'll be doing live, will be on the We Are Worthy Summit website. Sorry, will they be available yes. after the summit ends? Absolutely. They'll, they'll be up there for good. So you can go and find them at any time. Fabulous. Right, so some quick fire questions, short and sharp, one way mm-hmm. one word answers wherever possible. Um, okay. <laughs> who is your inspiration and why? It sounds really corny, but it is Oprah. <laughs> um, she's just someone who's turned her personal story into helping millions of others, and she just does it with such grace and energy. I just really admire her. She's right up there. I totally get that. Do you feel like a leader or a follower? Now, this is a really interesting question. I've had to think about it because I think I feel like both. And I, I, I think that's because my, my way of being a leader is that I'm very collaborative. You know, my thing is, you know, we rise together. I, I like to support as many women as possible. I like to help them find their power too. So I generally don't tend to recognize myself as a leader, but I, I kind of forget that I am. Um, <laughs> I would say so, that you are very definitely yeah. a leader. Definitely. Yeah. 
And what is the best piece of advice that you've received? Do you know what? I've hardly had any good advice in my life. So I was thinking about this and actually it was the advice that was given to someone else that they told me about and I thought it was brilliant. And it was, you know, right back at the beginning of my, my journey, I hadn't yet kind of really woken up to the fact I was going to be childless and it was a woman a few years older than me and she said that her therapist had said to her, we are all a little broken and that's okay. And I never forgot that. And that, you know, I would love to say it was said to me, but it was, it kind of, it came to me through someone else. And it meant a lot. I like that. I like that. It makes a lot of sense. What accomplishments are you most proud of? Ah, well, um, I was the first person in my family to go to university. Um, I went as a mature student at 28. Um, and I absolutely loved it. I studied English literature in the evenings whilst working as well in London. And I graduated with uh, with a first class degree and the university prize in English. And that was an amazing moment at my graduation to have my mother and my grandmother there for my graduation. And um, I guess I come from a long line of unfulfilled women. So it really felt like I broke the mold. I'm very proud of that and very proud of my book. And so you should be. <laughs> Best movie? It's been my favorite for a long time. It hasn't been surpassed yet. And it's actually Blade Runner, the original one. And I was really thinking about that before our call. And I thought, why is that movie? And I just thought about it. It's about outsiders. Ooh. You know, it's about a group of people who aren't understood. You know, it, it still is. It still really speaks to me. Just really and I love science fiction. Yeah. yeah. People just do not expect that of me. I'm actually a science fiction junkie. I have been since I was a kid. <laughs> I think I'm an, ideal, I'm an idealist. I love to think about ways the world possibly could be. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I'm a great believer in that. Um, your favorite book? Perhaps an unusual one. It's the very first spiritual book I read um, after my divorce and sort of beginning to find myself again. It's by an American Buddhist nun called Pema Chodron. And it's called When Things Fall Apart. And it is the most extraordinarily funny, wise little book about basically what happens when the shit hits the fan. It's a beautiful and, um, it is a beautiful. I recommend I it to everyone who's struggling. Yeah, coming to terms with something that you really didn't see coming, that's the book. She's an amazing woman too. She really is. And if you had a song for your life, what would that song be? Do you know, I struggled with this and I wasn't able to find a song for my life, but I have thought of the song that feels good for me at the moment. And it's... Um, you're just too good to be true. Oh, I love and it. it's the version with Anna, <laughs> and it's the version with Lauren Hill and the Fugees. And um, I, um, I'm with a wonderful new partner that I met a couple of years ago after many years of being single and coming to terms with my childlessness. And uh, you know, we're living together. We're madly in love. And uh, the line is, you know, um, I'm so glad I'm alive. You know, it's about waiting and then love showing up. And that's something that has been a delightful surprise for me. I was very happily married when I was younger. I presumed that that was it, that I'd had that experience. And I'm just delighted to say that, at, you know, at 54, I'm getting another go. Woohoo! <laughs> Great. <laughs> so there's hope here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the last question, your favorite quote. 
Oh, it's been my favorite quote since school, you know. So this one is really important. And it's from a po an American poet called Robert Frost. And I had this pinned up on my desk for many years. And it's the best way out is through. Oh, I use that. And now I work with grief. Yeah, yeah. It's the best way, you know, the best way to deal with childlessness is to go through the grieving process and come out the other side. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's been so great chatting to you and um, just hearing your insights and more about your story. Um, I know I read your book, but it was years ago. So it kind of like brought mm -hmm. some of the things back to me. Um, mm -hmm. And also for sharing all the, the ways that you are really, you are a leader. Um, I hear what you're saying about bringing people together, but you need to be a leader in order to do that. And I just know how much you've done for women around the world in creating ways for women to get together, to share, to chat, mm -hmm. to recognize that grief, to move beyond it. And um, mm -hmm. on behalf of all those women, thank you, because it needs to be done. And um, I can't help but now that I know your story, just hearing it directly from you and just the fact that it started with a blog post and that it was seven years ago, how much has changed mm -hmm. and how much you've done, I truly believe that it, it was very much a part of your path to do that and, mm -hmm. and, um, and everything has just come together to move you forward to create bigger and better things and to create a shift in society and the way we've seen and embraced. So thank you. Thank you. I always, when I was a little girl, I always wanted to leave the world a better place than I found it. Like I said, I was, I've always been an idealist. I never thought, I thought that was going to be by bringing up these amazing children. Cause of course they would have been amazing. Um, and that didn't work out. But as you said, it turned out that my path has been to, hopefully support individual women and I really really hope create some social change around the stories that we tell about childlessness beautiful thank you thank you so much thank you for listening to this episode of the virtual midwife podcast the show is available on audioboom itunes google play radio public and tune in if you've enjoyed it please share it and leave me a review I love to hear your feedback and I'm always looking for inspirational and uplifting stories to share. Make sure you sign up on my website and social media channels and let's share the love. Thanks for listening. This is Karen Wilmot, the Virtual Midwife, signing off until next time.